Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 49. We will read through verse 56. This is our sixth time together in Luke chapter 12, and we will finish next week on Easter Sunday with verses 57 through 59. We are going to do quite a bit of reading today. I'll tell you that up front. We'll be reading from multiple passages. Uh, I'll ask you to focus and pay attention and read along with me. I know that sometimes when there is lengthy reading, it can be easy to let your mind wander. Um, it's easy enough to let your mind wander when I drone on and on, but stay with me as we read. We'll be in four different texts this morning, but uh, we'll begin here in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Um, we have gotten to this point in Luke's gospel, this particular chapter of Luke's gospel, um, through some bumpy waters. Um, the text is hard. The chapter is hard. It is not smooth sailing to get to this final part of Luke chapter 12. It is rocky and bumpy and challenging. In verses 4 through 9, there is the call to fear God and be faithful to Christ. Um, you might see in verse 4 the challenging and yet threatening tone. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That is threatening. That is scary. That is sharp. It culminates in verse 9. Whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In verses 13 through 21, we have one of the most challenging parables in the New Testament. This parable of the rich fool. Uh, it's the story of a man who finds great wealth and yet the intentions of his heart betray a mindset of squandering what he's been blessed with. And it's his intentions alone which condemn him before God. And in verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And what a powerful passage Marty read from Psalm 49 and the language of that there as well. Uh, a man who becomes wealthy and rich and everyone blesses him and speaks of his great magnitude, but is yet a fool in his heart towards God, is not wise towards God, is no better than the beast of the field. And he will die and come to the same end. It does not get easier in verses 22 through 34 where we deal with fear and worry and timidity, it seems encouraging and it seems as if Jesus is turning the corner and it is encouraging that we can trust God, but it culminates in verses 32 through 34 with another challenging warning, another challenging application. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Good, good. Verse 33 Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And the blows just keep coming to our own earthly affections. Verse 35 through 40 is the parable that reminds us to be ready. You do not know at what hour your master will return, which can be applied to us in two ways. Number one, with the very real promise that Jesus Christ will return. As it says here, as a thief in the night. And yet, it's no less of an application that you do not know what day your life will be required of you. And your confrontation with the Lord may not endure, may not delay to the time of His coming. It may be much sooner than you realize. There's a 24-year-old NFL quarterback who was hit by a dump truck and died yesterday morning. A few years ago, he was on top of the world, winning you know, amazing nationally celebrated games for our, our Ohio State Buckeyes. A man with his whole life in front of him, gone. And the certainty of your tomorrow is no more sure. And then in verses 41 through 48, the warning that the followers of Jesus Christ who steward what God has given them in this life must be found faithful when Jesus returns. Must be found faithful or else judgment awaits them, not the inheritance of God's kingdom. Why all of this hard stuff? Well, the, the title of the series that we're working through, the working title that I've given to Marty each week, I hope he has it by now, because, you know, I, gave, I started off with, you know, Jesus and a resurrection worldview. You don't know this, but every Sunday afternoon as I'm trying to kind of recover and rest and come down from a very early start and teaching, I get a text message from Marty that says, what's the title this week? Because he's got to put it, you know, he puts it on the the internet for the, for the podcast, for the download for anyone who, who wants to listen, which is not many, but there are a few. And he asked me, what's the title? You'd think after part one, two, three, and four, he would know what the next title is, but nope, last week, part five. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot, sorry. But that's, that is the chapter. This is Jesus and a resurrection worldview. Now, we could call it Jesus and a crucifixion worldview, but so much of what the Lord says here looks forward to the other side of the cross, to the resurrection of the Lord, to the, the bodily return of Jesus Christ, and to the account that every man will give, every woman will give to a risen Lord Jesus. And this is part six. And all of this hard stuff to prepare us, Jesus to prepare his disciples for his departure from the earth, and for the long endurance, the race that was going to be before them, that they be faithful, that they be true, that they be ready, that they not be filled with fear and worry and doubt, but that they act with certainty that God is in control of their life as he is in control of the lives of birds. God is in control of their well-being as he closed the lilies of the fields. This is Jesus reassuring them for a time that is coming. And in verse 49 today, we come to the heart of the matter. 
I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, the debate among scholars is whether or not the fire that Jesus is referring to here is the spread of the gospel of Jesus throughout the world, which certainly happens, or whether or not it's the judgment of God poured out on the world. It's tough to see it as anything other than the judgment of God in light of the verses that follow. Certainly true that the gospel of Jesus would go out over all the world and that that is a purpose of Christ in coming. And yet, the context betrays a warning of judgment, both in what we've already read and what we will read now. Verse 50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. It's, um, it's a little disconcerting for me to get such a transparent window into the mind of Christ in the final days of his earthly ministry. This is not the only place we get it. In Matthew 20, verse 22, James and John's mother approaches Jesus and asks, can my sons sit on your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom? And he says, woman, you don't know what you ask. And then he asks a question of James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will now be baptized? This is the cross. This is the baptism of embracing God's wrath and God's judgment. The wrath of man, yes, but the wrath of God primarily. And Jesus is distressed by this. That's why Luke chapter 12 is so sharp, is so critical. That's why there's such an urgency into the warnings of Jesus. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever been distressed for someone's soul? I hope you have. Have you ever felt the urgency to say the things that need to be said? Have you ever felt that? Jesus is distressed. And his distress here is not, his distress is not, you know, exemplified in his own self-loathing. His distress comes out in the warnings to those whom he cares about, to his disciples. He is distressed for what he must go through, yes, but he is distressed for the implications of what it means for them. He knows that when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep will be scattered. He is concerned for their souls. He prays to God in John's gospel, Father, keep them. <laughs> Father, keep them in your hand. In God's sovereignty, he knows who will be kept and who will betray him. The Gospels don't give us a picture of Jesus that is ignorant as to what's to come. And yet, Jesus cannot deny his own humanity to express concern and prayer for these men, these disciples. He speaks of the crucifixion. Then verse 51, a return to the fire, I think, that is coming upon the earth. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. 
what a discombobulated understanding of all of the world's idealism. What does he mean? I did not come to bring peace on earth. Didn't the angels say at the birth of Christ over Bethlehem, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, and yet Jesus in his final days? Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you, not at all. Do not mix the gospel of Jesus Christ with the paganism of the world. Jesus did not come to unite all of us in our differences of beliefs and thought and morality. Jesus did not come to give the world a nice, happy, soft, cushioned, warmed blanket with which they can cover all of their guilty consciences and come together harmoniously. That's not the work of Christ. The peace that the angels sing about at the advent of Jesus is peace from God with sinners. And whatever sinners will embrace peace with God through Christ will be divided from those who reject Christ. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, is a message from heaven. God, our judge, offering condemned people restitution, redemption, a place in his presence. But when sinners who are condemned are now redeemed and saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that does not mean peace for them with the rejection of Jesus in the world at large. Verse 52, for from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Paul writes. Now, does this mean that Christians should be antagonistic and bitter towards unbelieving family members? Of course not. But it means if your faith in Jesus is real and transformative, if it's the kind of faith that Jesus says exemplifies his own disciples, a faith of self-denial, a faith of costliness, a faith of commitment to following him, that's the phrase from Matthew 16, 24. Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, self-denial, denial of your own will, denial of your own ambition, denial of your own intentions, denial of your own possession. Must deny himself, must take up his cross. Any man who follows me must be willing to pay a cost, a daily cost at that, and follow me. Make the leadership of Jesus, the leadership of their life, the intentions of Jesus, the intentions of their life, the instructions of Jesus, the instructions of their life. Any man or woman who seeks that sort of relationship with the Lord Jesus, which is the only type of genuine relationship there is, will find conflict with those who reject that premise entirely. And so Jesus warns, you shouldn't expect peace with all men on the earth. 
Now, the instruction from the New Testament, live in peace with all who you may, <laughs> as much as depends upon you. But the Lord Jesus knows that much of our enmity with the world will come out in ways of persecution and trial and difficulty that do not depend upon us. Verse 54, then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the time? This is Jesus holding this Jewish crowd accountable for not recognizing their own Messiah who's right in front of them. For not understanding their own scriptures. I think there's a warning for us in this too, that we have such a clear, such a transparent, use whatever word you like, an unambiguous set of instructions and warnings and concerns from the Lord Jesus. What does it say of us if we can't apply them to our lives? What does it say of us if we can't understand our place in this? It doesn't speak well. The multitudes, they never put it together. They had the prophets. They had their texts. They had their faith. And when they saw Jesus, they did not see the fulfillment of those things. Be careful. Be careful that you are rightly dividing the word of truth. Be careful who you give your ear to, who you give your attention to. Your life depends upon understanding Jesus, who he is, what he requires. Don't be misled in these things. I want to turn over to John 18 and see the sacrifice of the Lord, especially acknowledging the time and the season. This will be a little bit of a reading. I don't do this all the time. We don't spend week after week after week reading through the crucifixion of Jesus, but it is appropriate and it's right to do it. And so we will now, we'll read from chapter 18, verse 1, through most of chapter 19, we'll stop in verse 37. Read mostly without commentary, but I'm sure you know me well enough that I won't be able to help myself at some points. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. It's interesting, again, in Matthew twenty twenty two, Jesus asks his disciples, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And Peter answers here, doesn't he? I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is uh, on the heels of Peter in Matthew 26, telling the Lord that he would go to the death with him. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. External righteousness, if ever we've seen it. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him 
and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. The Jews did not want to kill Jesus because of the time and season. They clearly had no qualms of killing people, but their manner of killing someone was stoning. They would cast them down and hit them with rocks until they bled out and died wounded. Jesus had said in John 3, 14, that this would not be his manner of death. These are actually the verses that lead into John 3, 16, which many of us know so well. But here is the Lord Jesus in John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The lifting up is symbolic of Moses, who in the wilderness, when the children of Israel had sinned, fashioned a serpent, a bronze serpent, onto the top of a stick uh, and held it up high so that anyone who looked at the serpent, their life would be spared and they would not die from the sickness. And here Jesus says, I am the fulfillment, the prophetic fulfillment of the serpent that Moses lifted up in the desert. The serpent, of course, being a symbolic image of sin. Israel, for their salvation in the wilderness, had to look upon the symbolism of their sin, faith in God that he would save them if they did. And so Jesus is the symbol of our sin on the cross that we look to for salvation. So verse 32 says, This happened that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? What an interesting question. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? In other words, I don't speak for myself. <laughs> Why would I care? Oh, how differently things might have gone for Pilate if he had cared. Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. There's a bit of a convicting thought there. Where is your kingdom? This is Jesus doing everything he has ever commanded you to do that's hard. This is his fulfillment of where is your treasure. Jesus' treasure and possession was not here. It is the kingdom of God. It is a spiritual kingdom that will become a physical kingdom. But first, Christ must purchase it. Where is your heart? Where is your kingdom? Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? 
Are you admitting to being a king? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should, be wit that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of this truth hears my voice. Jesus will not compromise on that truth. And he's right. We read from Revelation 19 last week, didn't we? Written on his thigh is a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus was not born for a cross. He was born for a crown. First, the king must die. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. What a conflicted man. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I think this is what the Lord had in mind when he told them, you can look at the sky and see the clouds in the west and know that rain is coming. You can feel the warm wind from the south and know that heat is coming, but you don't know your own king when he's standing in front of you. You can't read the times and the seasons. That they would plead for the release of a robber, of a violent man, instead of the Lord. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. The Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the one whom a sword proceeds from his mouth, who will melt his enemies in Revelation 19, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was striped for your sin, was marked was scourged, tied to a pole like an animal and beaten. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. What a gruesome, bloodied, ruined, broken picture. Remember this picture when you read of the wrath of God in Revelation 19. Those of you who have a son, imagine what your wrath would be. Remember this picture when Jesus appears in heaven and tramples over his enemies. When he's wearing a robe dipped in the blood of those whom God's wrath is being poured out against. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the God of creation in flesh. Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to... If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him. The two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, 
and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified. This is John writing now. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. I want to read to you from Zechariah chapter 12 concerning that last phrase, they will look on those whom they pierced. This is the same Jesus who loved Israel and was deeply concerned for them. And Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet writing of the one day when Israel will be united to their Messiah by faith. Chapter 12, verse 1, the words of the prophet Zechariah, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. I wonder which of those is more magnificent. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. He's looking forward to a day when Jerusalem will draw the armies of the peoples of the world to itself, a cup of drunkenness like intoxicated people. The enemies of God will be drawn against the city of Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. God is speaking of him in a day when he will act as the defending agent of Judah and Jerusalem. And first he'll go outside of the city of Jerusalem to the land of Judah, and he will save the people there. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts their God. And that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. 
They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. The weak man will be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. God will look at these people, his people whom he's saving, and as if grace and mercy are in a, a giant pitcher, he will pour it out upon them. He will cause them to look upon him in a way that they have not looked upon him before. He will open their hearts with this spirit of grace. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Who is he speaking of? Jesus. When is the day? Revelation 19. When Israel is all but defeated, God will open their eyes and their hearts. The Lord will return. They will look upon him who they have pierced. They will grieve for him, for what they have done. They will grieve for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Not mourning because they're losing the battle or their enemies are overtaking them, a mourning of the soul. Have you known this mourning of the soul? Has God poured out a spirit of grace and supplication in your life so that you have looked upon the Lord Jesus who has been striped for your transgressions, pierced for your iniquities? Have you said with the believers that the transgressions, the sin that was ours has been cast on his shoulders? That is what God will do in Jesus at the return of the Lord. It's amazing. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 9, and we'll finish for today. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Can you hear the voice of Jesus in Luke 12 there? 
and your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people will not be cut off from the city. At the last hour, they will turn to the Lord. When all hope is lost, Jesus will return. Then the Lord will go forth. Amen. And fight against those nations. As he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. And half of the mountain shall move away toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. I want to be there for that. I want to go to war with Jesus. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name is one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus did not come to give you a happy, peaceful, easy life where you can get along with everybody in your family and you can get along with everybody in the world and everybody will live under the warm blanket of his tender compassion. He did not come to bring peace but a sword. And the peace he offers you is the peace he offers Israel when he pours out a spirit of grace and supplication and they look on the one whom they pierced and they realize what Jesus Christ has done to bring them salvation. My hope and prayer for you, for everyone here today, is that you have looked to Jesus Christ and experienced that same feeling of guilt and torment of soul. That you have experienced the unworthiness of your own life and that you have seen in Christ someone worthy of your love and devotion and admiration. That your faith in him is genuine and saving, that you will ride with the Lord Jesus at his return, and that you'll not be found as an object of wrath, but as an object of God's eternal blessing. That can be yours. That's the hope of the passage. What Marty read this morning, the promise of life after death, that can be yours. But there is no middle ground. It will either be eternal life or eternal condemnation, judgment and wrath. I hope that you have this resurrection worldview. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father in heaven, there are souls here this morning that need to be saved. There are no doubt men and women, children, teenagers, 
imagining that they can live in some comfortable middle ground between your grace and your judgment. And they cannot. You have warned them as you warned Judas with the words of Christ in Luke chapter 12. Salvation for them is now. Please, Father, pour out a spirit of your grace and supplication in their heart that they might look on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Please, Father, forgive our sin. Sanctify us and heal our wounds. Make us the disciples that in our hearts we want to be. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thank you for your enduring love for us. For the security of a hand that will not let us go. For the faithfulness of a shepherd who will not leave us. Thank you for the rod and the staff. For the comfort, for the discipline. For your great loyalty that you show us. Thank you, Father. Help us to honor you and praise you. For the great God that you are. It's in Jesus name that I pray. Amen.